Good morning again and welcome. If you have uh, been with us for any length of time here in the past year or so, you know we're working our way through Paul's letter to the Romans, a fairly long letter, 16 chapters, at least as Bible letters go. And um, We are actually starting chapter 10, picking up with verse 1 of chapter 10 this morning, and we're going to go through to verse 4 of that same chapter. And uh, the actual the section we're in, those little four verses, are uh, part of a larger section that includes chapters 9, 10, and 11. That's sort of a unit, maybe the third main unit in the letter. And this whole section is really concerned with, uh, the, the, the main problem it's trying to deal with is this problem of Jewish unbelief. By which I mean the widespread unresponsiveness of the Jewish people to the Lord Jesus Christ, both when Jesus was here and in Paul's ministry and then afterwards. Now, that may be something new to you. You may not have uh, had thought about that or wondered about that before or why that might even be a problem. So uh, let me just share with you why I think it was a problem then. Um, and you might be asking, what's that about? Well, very simply put, the problem that chapters 9 to 11 are really trying to address is this. Uh, answer that they're trying to answer this question, these questions. You know, how could these people, how could this nation that had been the recipients of so many great blessings, these people who had been the subject of so many great promises, uh, how could they be, the Jewish peoples, how could they be so unresponsive to the promised one himself when he finally came, to Jesus when he finally came. How could they not have responded to him, having looked for him for so long? I mean, if you had taken a public opinion survey back in Jesus' day, in Paul's day, uh, if you had gone around and asked people whether or not they believed that God was going to one day send a Messiah to deliver his people and restore them as a nation in their own right and usher in his kingdom and all that sort of thing, if you had generally polled the Jewish people back in the day with that question, they would have pretty much all said, well, yes, of course, absolutely, I believe that. And yet along came Jesus, preaching and teaching, performing miracle after miracle, sign after sign, confounding the religious authorities at every turn. And what happened? The Jewish people almost, almost entirely rejected him. But how could that be? How could they not recognize this one that their own prophets had spoken of? This coming deliverer, this Messiah, this one who had fulfilled so many prophecies. Even further, what did all it mean? What did all that mean in terms of God's promises? And then, as if that isn't enough, you have this whole deal of the, the coming in of the Gentiles. They're coming, the Gentiles are responding in droves to the Lord Jesus. So what's up with that? How does that fit in to the overall picture? Those are the kinds of questions and concerns that chapters 9 to 11 are trying to get at. We started looking at that a few weeks back. Chapter 9 verses 1 to 13. And the first thing that Paul addresses then as he deals with this issue is this question of whether or not Jewish unresponsiveness, especially as seen over against the Gentiles' overwhelming receptivity. But Paul wanted to know whether that meant, their unresponsiveness meant that God's promises had failed. And the conclusion that Paul came to was that God's promises had most certainly not failed. 
because while God had always distinguished his people as a nationalistic entity from the rest of the world, God had also made further distinctions within his own people. And uh, his choice of Isaac over Ishmael, for example, his choice of Jacob over Esau, those are prime illustrations of that very thing. In other words, Paul's response to that question it was to say that God's covenant blessings have always had in view, ultimately, an Israel within ethnic Israel, a subset of wider Israel. And so the fact that not many Israelites recognized Jesus as the Messiah when he came, well, that's sort of business as usual. That kind of thing's been going on all throughout Old Testament history. God's been dealing with a minority, with a subset, with a remnant of God's people for a long time. So Paul's saying it shouldn't be all that surprising that the Jews didn't respond uh, in huge numbers. But then this reality, you see, of God sovereignly and unconditionally choosing or electing to pour out His blessings and favor on whole nations and then upon particular persons within nations. right? The reality of God's selectivity amongst His own people raised another question in the minds of some, specifically question found in verse 14. Is there then injustice? Is there injustice on God's part for doing that? For being selective like that? In other words, is God right to do that? Is that a just thing for God to do? Responding to those kind of questions then was the main point of verses 14 to 18. And then uh, when we looked at those uh, things a few weeks ago now, there were several things we noticed at the time, and we won't rehearse all of them, but one of them was simply this, remembering the sobering truth that all humanity stands united in their unrighteousness and in their inherent unworthiness before God. And because that's true, everybody's in that same boat, because that's true, there's no one to whom God owes anything which then means that all of God's actions toward individuals in this or any age fall either in the category of justice or mercy, but nobody receives injustice at the hand of God. But then this raises a further question that Paul must address. If all of that is true, if God has mercy upon whomever he wills, if God hardens the hearts of whomever he wills, as verse 19 asks, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, if God is that sovereign, if he's that much in charge of what's happening in the world and in history, how can anyone other than himself be held responsible for anything? That was the focus of our time last week. And as we looked at verses 19 to 29, we saw how Paul responded in two different ways to that question. His uh, first response was a kind of caution or a warning to anyone who might pose such a question. And Paul's solemn reminder was to be very careful because when you ask those kind of questions, you need to remember that you're talking about God here. And you're talking to God here. God who, by, by sheer virtue of who He is as the Creator, has the same sort of rights with regard to His creatures as a potter has with regard to his or her clay, to make out of that same lump one item for noble use and to make another item for common or ignoble use. And along with that sobering reminder of God's sovereignty was the additional reminder that just because you and I cannot work out the precise relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility, that doesn't mean God doesn't have it worked out. And in fact, He does have it worked out. 
And the God who's perfectly holy and perfectly just and merciful, who has it worked out, finds fault. He holds human beings responsible for their actions and their choices. And so if a God who's that sovereign, who shows mercy on one, to one and hardens the heart of another, but if a God like that, who's holy and just, finds fault, it can only mean one thing. It can only mean there must be fault to be found. There can be no other conclusion. Or we're not dealing with God. That was the first response. Paul's second response to the question, why does God still find fault, was to see God's making what for us, admittedly, are difficult to understand choices as an outworking of God's desire. All that, all these hard choices that we struggle with are an outworking of God's desire to be truly and deeply known, at least as deeply as finite sinful creatures can. And in thinking about that whole matter, we were helped by Jonathan Edwards, uh, his observation that to the degree our knowledge of God is deficient, to that same degree will our joy and happiness in God be diminished. Or to put it more positively, the fuller our knowledge of God, the greater will be our happiness in God. In other words, what Edwards is saying is that this universe, this universe with its allowance and inclusion of evil and sin and suffering is the sort of universe that was necessary if we were to know both the full range of God's attributes and if we were to know them beyond a surface level, at a level He wanted us to know them. This is the kind of universe you have to have to do that. Now thus far in responding to this problem of Jewish unbelief and the various questions that get raised along the way, Paul has placed a strong emphasis in chapter 9 on the sovereignty of God. A sovereignty that is seen on both sides of the equation, determining those to whom he'll show mercy, determining those who receive his justice and whose hearts are correspondingly hardened. That's where the emphasis has been so far throughout chapter 9. But now, now we're moving into chapter 10. And chapter 10 is dealing with the same subject matter, but it's going to have different emphases. Uh, Stott summarizes it this way. He says, the emphasis of chapter 10 is on human factors. The human responsibility side of things, if you will, on the need of an understanding of the gospel in 5 to 13, a need for the proclamation of the gospel in 14 to 15, a need for the response of faith in 16 to 21. But chapter 10, Paul turns from the past to the present, from his explanation of the Israelites' unbelief to his hope that they will yet hear and believe the gospel. This vision for the future he will elaborate further on in chapter 11. So that's kind of telling you what 10 is about, where it's going, some of the, the main structural pieces of chapter 10. We'll let that serve as an introduction. And uh, before we go any further, let me just pause and pray and ask God to bless our time as we look at these uh, few verses before us. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, would you please superintend our reading and thinking about this particular portion of your word this morning. In our own strength and with our own abilities, we might be able to see something here and there in a rather shallow fashion. But if we want to go further than that, then we'll need eyes to see and ears to hear deeply. 
We'll need your spirit to guide us into the truth that you want us to see and that you intended when you had these words written down. Further, Father, we'll need the Spirit's work to subdue our hearts, to help us to get past the distortions of our own flesh and the corruptions of our thinking that are still deeply ingrained within us. So, would you do all that needs to be done to ensure that these words land on us, um, on everybody in this room, Father, in the particular ways they need to land and we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's listen now to the passage. If you have a Bible, I think ultimately you'll be better served if you develop a habit of following along in your own Bible. If not, then we've got it printed in the bulletin there for you. Let me read uh, Romans 10, verses 1 to 4. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them... This is Paul talking about his Jewish brothers and sisters. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The first thing I want you to notice in these verses is something we noted at the beginning of chapter 9. Namely... Paul's genuine compassion for his Jewish brothers and sisters. You may remember at the beginning of chapter 9, we heard Paul saying that he was willing to be cut off. He's willing to be cursed or damned if it would result in the salvation of the Jews. That's how strongly he felt about their being saved. And here again, Paul expresses the depth of his affection for his brothers and sisters and his great grief at their continued unresponsiveness to the things of God. And yet, while Paul is grieved over them, He's not in despair. He hasn't actually given up hope. He hasn't written them off. More importantly, Paul hasn't written God off in this equation. Certainly Paul knows full well what God has done in the past with his people. And he was watching God's sovereign purposes play out right before him in their hardening, hardened hearts and unresponsiveness. But Paul also believed that God was still active that his plans and purposes were still unfolding and that within all of that there were things that were yet to come things that hadn't appeared on the horizon yet with regard to God's ultimate purposes and just because God seemed to presently be engaged in hardening the hearts of so many of the Jewish people that didn't mean he would always do so even though they hadn't responded yet that didn't mean they never would respond and there's something in that I think for all of us isn't there? And Paul continued to pray for the salvation of his people. His continued prayer there is a model for us in how we can and should respond ourselves to the hardened hearts of our own people, our own family and friends. That up till now, I mean we all know people, right? We know people that up till now seem to be impervious to the truth of the gospel. But, but the simple fact is this. There is no person... Nobody in your life, there's no set of people, there's no collection of people on this planet that while they're, out, they're yet living, that we can place, we can place in the too hard basket. There's no one that is outside the sovereign reach of God. And the question 
is never if God can save someone. That is never the question. It is only and always if God will save someone. That's the question. And until that door is closed, while there is still life and breath, there is still hope. You may have people in your life, people you love dearly, that you've been praying for for decades, and you don't see a glimmer of light or hope on the horizon. You keep praying, because you do not know what God will do, or when He may yet work. You do not know. It's not for us to know. Paul kept praying for the the Jewish people. And please notice that that is his his response. He prays for the salvation of the Jewish people. This is the same Paul who's written so strongly, so soberingly about the comprehensive sovereignty of God who does what he will with his creation. This is the same Paul who sees a severely providential purpose behind all of God's actions and choices, including the ones that are difficult for us to understand, much less accept. This is the same Paul who, as we'll see in an upcoming message, sees a wider, almost strategic purpose behind the Jews' rejection of Christ that has to do with the bringing in of the Gentiles. This is the same Paul. He sees all those things, and yet this same Paul also says that he prays to this sovereign God for the salvation of his Jewish brothers and sisters. In other words, Paul believes that prayer matters. He speaks so strongly in the sovereignty of God, but he absolutely believes that prayers matter. Paul believes that talking to a sovereign God about lost people can make a difference. Paul believes that God listens to the prayers of his people. To be sure, the fact that God listens doesn't mean he's directed or controlled by the prayers of his people, but it must mean, at the very least, and in a way we can't fully work out, that God uses them and works through them and employs them somehow in the carrying out of his sovereign purposes. In other words, Paul does not allow his firm belief in the sovereignty of God to lead him to the practice of human irresponsibility and personal disengagement. If that were the right conclusion, if that were the correct and logical implication to be drawn from the sovereignty of God, then surely Paul who understood these things better than any of us, would have drawn that conclusion and would have acted accordingly. But he doesn't. He prays to this sovereign God because he thinks it will make a difference. Again, Stott, in his commentary on Romans, writes helpfully, he says, in chapter 9, the emphasis is upon the sovereign and determinative will of God and the differentiation that exists amongst men. God has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he will, he hardens. But this differentiation is God's action and prerogative, not man's. And our attitude to men is not to be governed by God's secret counsel concerning them because we don't know it. We violate the order of human thought and trespass the boundary between God's prerogative and man's when the truth of God's sovereign counsel constrains despair or abandonment of concern for the eternal interests of men. Right? So Paul's understanding of God's sovereignty did not diminish in the least his compassion for his lost brothers and sisters, nor did his belief in that affect his practice. He actually prayed for them. He prayed for their salvation because he knew it mattered. Paul didn't make that mistake, and you shouldn't either. Right? 
don't make the mistake, as one commentator puts it, don't make the mistake of allowing a theological inference that you draw from a certain doctrine, from the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Don't let an inference that you draw from that doctrine cause you to ignore the clear command and example of Scripture. Because that's the temptation sometimes when it comes to this issue of God's sovereignty. The temptation is to, to look at that doctrine, to kind of throw up our hands, and to look at that doctrine in isolation from the rest of Scripture, to draw some conclusion that says what we do doesn't matter, that our choices don't matter, that we aren't responsible, that our prayers are pointless and must be. That's the temptation. But then you look at the clear teaching and the example of Scripture, and you look at people like Paul, who, as I've said, get it, better than you and I will ever get it about the sovereignty of God and what you find clearly is this truth and this example in their life that what we do matters deeply that our choices count our prayers are important they make a difference so don't make a bare theological inference drawn from some doctrine and then allow that inference to cause you to ignore the clear teaching of scripture an example of scripture elsewhere Yes, Paul believed in the comprehensive sovereignty of God. Yes, Paul believed in the importance and necessity of prayer for the lost in the midst of that. You and I should do the same. Compassion for those who don't know God makes perfect sense. Prayers for their salvation is absolutely the right thing to do. It's always the right thing to do. That's the first thing I want you to notice. Paul's compassion, Paul's prayers. The second thing I want you to notice is found in verse 2 where Paul describes his Jewish brothers and sisters as people who have zeal, but whose zeal is not grounded in knowledge. In other words, their zeal, while it may be genuine and even sincere, is ultimately meaningless and worthless. To be sure, Paul understood this, right? He understood exactly where they're coming from. Like Paul, if you remember his story, Paul knew all about this sort of thing, right? That's the story of Paul's life. As he was growing up, and, and that was his story all the way up to the point of his con conversion to Christianity. Paul described his experience basically as a zealot. In Philippians chapter 3, you remember these words? Paul says, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, there's the word, a persecutor, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless right, Paul knew what it meant to be a zealous committed religious person he'd done it his whole life but the problem was his zeal was not based in true knowledge it was misguided and zeal no matter how strong or genuine it may be but zeal is only as good as that upon which it is grounded or based <coughs> So you may be high, high up in some massive tree enjoying climbing around and jumping from branch to branch and you come to a particular branch that looks sturdy enough, seems to be strong and firm and so you confidently step out onto this branch placing your full weight on the branch and then suddenly the branch gives way and you go crashing to the ground. Because what you didn't know is that the branch in question was just eaten up on the inside by termites. And all the confidence in the world, all the zeal in the world will not cause a termite-ridden branch to support your full weight, no matter how firmly you believe it. 
That was Paul's situation before Christ. He had tons of zeal, but it was not grounded in true knowledge. It was based instead on falsehood. It was based on misunderstandings. He was sincere, and he was sincerely wrong at the same time. So what am I saying? I'm saying that zeal that's not grounded in knowledge or truth, zeal itself is not inherently meritorious. It's not inherently worthwhile. It will not get you points with God. Religious sincerity will not save a single person. It never has and it never will. God does not look down from heaven and say to himself, well, they're completely wrong, but at least they meant well. He doesn't do that. He doesn't think that way. And we know he doesn't think that way because he's told us he doesn't think that way. And he's shown us that he doesn't think that way. A God who thinks that way about his people, about the people on this planet, doesn't send his son to die. Because if, if meaning well is all that counts, then sending your son to die is stupid and pointless. Zeal without knowledge is not inherently meritorious. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's positively dangerous. As Stott writes, the proper word for zeal without knowledge, for commitment without reflection, the proper word for enthusiasm without understanding is fanaticism. And fanaticism is a horrid and dangerous state to be in. Zeal without knowledge is what led the Jewish authorities and crowds to murder Jesus. Zeal without knowledge is what led Paul to persecute Christians to their death. Zeal without knowledge, not grounded in truth, is what leads people to strap bombs to their chests and walk into public places and explode them. Now, of course, zeal without knowledge doesn't always lead to extreme things like that. But it often does. It does not always lead to violence. Sometimes it leads to religious expressions and practices which, while not violent in themselves, are still personally, spiritually disastrous and which are fundamentally at odds with what God truly desires. And that's what Paul, I think, is getting at in verses 3 and 4, which are an expansion of what he just said in verse 2. Listen to 3 and 4 again. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So what's Paul saying? He's saying that his Jewish brothers and sisters were not lacking in zeal. Their zeal was demonstrated in the way that they devoted themselves to keeping the law or trying to keep the law. Their zeal was seen in the way that they were seeking to make themselves right with God. They had abundant expressions of that kind of zeal. But then that was precisely the problem because that zeal, that commitment was not grounded in true knowledge but in falsehood. It was grounded in the fundamental rejection of God's plan to save His people by means of a righteousness that He would supply. Not that they would provide themselves. Through Christ... It was grounded in the faulty belief, their zeal was grounded in the faulty belief that sinful people can do things that will save themselves. 
And Paul knew that his Jewish brothers and sisters were operating under that sort of misunderstanding. And he knew it because it's precisely the perspective by which he was living before he was converted. Listen again to Philippians 3. Paul says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Here's the key phrase. Be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. By which he means law keeping. That's clearly what he means if you see the context of the whole passage. He says not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which comes. A righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. Paul's Jewish contemporaries zeal wasn't grounded in true knowledge. And it wasn't in Jesus. Really, ultimately, their confidence was in themselves. In their ability to save themselves. And see, the deceptive thing about that sort of religious zeal and activity is that, as Piper points out, you know, it looks like a good thing on the surface, at least. It seems like a submissive thing to do, a humble thing to do, but it isn't. It isn't because, partially because it's a misunderstanding of the fundamental impossibility of sinful people pulling this off before a holy God, but that's not what in, is in view here. What's in view here is the fact that the attempt to make oneself right with God by means of your own self-effort is fundamentally a rejection of God's way of making His people righteous. It's to thumb your nose at God. In other words, trying to establish and secure a right relationship with God on the basis of your sincere efforts and religious observances rather than trusting in Christ is, in essence, to say to Jesus, you know, hey, don't get me wrong here. I really appreciate you're coming all this way to planet Earth, leaving behind the glories of heaven, taking on this human flesh, uh, living all those years here and dying on the cross and enduring the wrath of God, and that was a tough one, and the realities of hell. I really, I totally appreciate that. That was an awesome thing for you to do. That's an amazing gift. However, if it's okay... I'm not going to accept that. I'm going to do this thing over here instead. I think I got this covered. Thanks. I really appreciate it. It was awesome. I'm going to do this instead. The problem for Paul's Jewish brothers and sisters was that in their misplaced and wrongly grounded zeal, they're rejecting God's solution for their unrighteousness, assuming they could handle things themselves. And so they didn't submit, and they wouldn't submit to God's way by trusting Christ. And see, that word submit is important. The word submit is really important because that's what embracing God's way of making you right with himself is, is all about. It's all about submitting, bowing the knee to a disturbing truth. It's about dis submitting to a truth about yourself, that you can't fix yourself, that you are, you are uh, utterly depraved and hopeless. That you can't save yourself. It's about submitting to the provision that God makes that you don't deserve and can't earn. I mean, the whole thing, the whole thing of God's righteousness is this massive blow to our pride and our ego. 
and our desire to have something to do with the saving of ourselves, to have some credit, some claim upon God, to put Him into our debt. But please do not repeat, please do not repeat the error of Paul's brothers and sisters. Do not cling to your pride. Don't cling to the foolish notion that you can find some other means of making yourself right with God than the humbling, ego-destroying way that trusting Christ is. You can't find another way because there isn't one. You will never, ever impress God with your behavior or your track record. I mean, there's all kinds of good things that flow out of our being right with God through Jesus, but there is not a single good thing we can do that will result in our becoming right with God. Not a single one. So abandon all hope of saving yourself and cast yourself instead upon the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. That would have been Paul's prayer for his people. That ought to be our prayer for all kinds of people. It's my prayer for even some within this room. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, please do that work that only you can do. But take these words that you authored and cause them to land on hearts that you are um, making receptive and alive, making able to, to hear and see things that before now they couldn't be heard, couldn't be seen, weren't going to be believed or accepted. Father, match those things up, your word and your spirit's work in the hearts of people, even people here this morning. Please match that up, Father, as you use us in the lives of other people, as we not only pray for people, as Paul did for his people, but as we actually see that that. Prayer for them results in um, courage on our part to not only hope and pray that they come to know the Lord Jesus, but to actually introduce them to Him ourselves and to trust that you work through that. You work through our um, halting efforts and our imperfect descriptions and explanations, that you'll work through all of that to bring people to an understanding and embrace of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Father, help us to pray. Move us from prayer into to speech and action, to witness with our uh, the words that we use, the things we say, the way that we live and love people around us and in our lives. Uh, enable us, Father, to have that privilege of seeing you work, seeing you save and show mercy to many people, uh, including people we have prayed for and waited for for a long time. Father, would you be so kind as to do that uh, for your sake and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll now take up an offering for those who want to support.
um, this church and the number of different ministries that we support throughout uh, throughout the year at South Baton Rouge.